Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And you can find our passage on page 876 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you, ha- if you had faith like the- a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So uh, Jesus has been, uh, for a little while now, been speaking to the Pharisees and talking to them. Uh, and confronting them particularly about their, uh, their love of money that they have uh, enshrouded uh, with uh, uh, their piety, with their religiousness. But now Jesus turns his attention back to his disciples. And he deals with four common issues uh, that come up in the Christian life. Temptation, forgiveness, faith, and responsibility. These four areas Jesus teaches on remind us that the Christian life is no simple matter. We don't believe that we just, when we just come to faith, everything is just amazing and all the time. We don't believe that temptation is easy to deal with, that forgiveness comes easily, that doubt never has to be wrestled with, that our pride never needs to be, never needs to be squashed. But let us remember who Jesus is speaking to here. He is speaking to his disciples. This means that Jesus is speaking to his followers, to those he calls his friends, to those who love him and call him Lord. And so as we consider Jesus' words this morning, we need to take them as a form of encouragement from the Lord to his own. He is equipping his disciples to live for him. He's equipping us this morning, encouraging us to fight against sin, the flesh and the world and the devil by the power of the Spirit. So we're going to look at each of these four encouragements this morning. We begin with verses 1 and 2, which we find an encouragement, and I would say kind of even maybe unusual or surprising encouragement about temptation he says two things clearly about temptation here. First, that temptation is certain. Jesus highlights two realities. 
First, that temptation is certain in this life. And secondly, you don't want to be the one through whom temptation comes. But Jesus has something in mind here, in here uh, more than just a general concept of temptation, this kind of abstract concept of temptation. He is thinking uh, more particularly uh, the agents through whom temptation comes to tempt people away from uh, the Lord. And so this would come through largely through persecutors or false teachers. Persecutors cause people to sin in this way by forcing them to renounce Christ through violence or the threat of it. Uh, it, it can also be done by coercion. False teachers corrupt Christian teaching and lead people astray from Christ uh, for their own gain, to increase their own pleasure. And so, this, uh, so agents of temptation can be outside of the church or even inside of the church, but Jesus has in mind those who would cause his little ones to stumble. And little ones here does not refer to children, but to his disciples who are the children of God. And just as the scriptures remind us not to be surprised by suffering and affliction in this life, doesn't mean we can't be surprised by the occasion of it and when it hits us, but, but to not be surprised by its existence. Uh, it's so the scriptures remind us that temptation is something that we are going to have to deal with all of our lives as we, as we come into glory. I, I've told you all about the marriage conference that Liz and I went to a while back, and the way they opened it up was, uh, was asking, uh, you know, how many of you, and they had us raise our hands, how many of you woke up this morning remembering that, that today you were engaged in spiritual warfare? That your, that your marriage is a battleground for your souls. And there was like two people out of the whole room that raised their hand, right? I was not one of them, just so you know. And so, it's, but if we know that temptation is coming, then we can prepare for it. We can be ready for the particular temptation that draws us in. Some things are more tempting for me than for you and vice versa, right? And, but life is busy and we can forget that we are in a spiritual war. We can roll our eyes and be like, oh yeah, spiritual war, onward Christian soldier, sure, whatever. And just kind of be like, that's kind of just lame, tacky, you know, Christian, Christian nonsense. But if you read the scriptures... I mean, Paul is not suggesting that we put on the armor of God daily. He's saying you need it. Why? Because the assaults of the devil are coming. The assaults of the flesh and the world are coming. And they're coming right on you in your own home, in your own heart and mind. And so temptation is certain, and temptation is hard, but Jesus encourages us here that God's love is greater. Because, look, you know the anger that you feel when someone you love has been hurt by someone else. When, when someone is may, maybe potentially uh, going to hurt someone you love, that makes you angry, viscerally angry. Especially, especially if that person is not as strong as you or able as you or capable of, of fending off uh, whatever is coming their way. 
is where they talk about the mama bear, right? Well, if we can love like that, if we can feel like that, how much more so God for his own children? Jesus says that those who function as agents of temptation intentionally seeking to cause God's people to stumble and sin would be better off dying a very gruesome death than to do that because of what they face for what they do. It would be better, he says, to have a huge, heavy stone hung around your neck and for someone to toss you off a cliff into the water than to, than to cause even one of God's people to sin. Think about that. Think about the words that Jesus shares there. Jesus meek and mild, right? Soft and cuddly. And, and, this, but the, and so, you know, that may sound a little severe, like, ugh, you know. But this is a testimony for God's love, how fiercely he loves his people. And, to, and, and that is you. How much God loves you. How ferociously angry God gets with the agents of temptation in your life that would lead you astray. And so, look, we face temptation and we're not going to pretend like we don't give into it. Like, we're not going to pretend that today. We do sinful things. We do foolishly stupid things as believers. But God's love to us in Christ brings forgiveness and wholeness. Whereas we know that his love will in the end bring an end to the corruption of the flesh. That, our, that that corruption that we fight against, that sometimes we give into to our shame, will in the end be removed. That the world that is corrupt will be purified. That the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion with his, with, with his demonic buddies will be destroyed and cast into the fire. But we have victory in Jesus. And right now, God's kindness doesn't lead us to shame, to hang our heads, but it leads us to repentance. It leads us to repentance when we, when we give in to temptation, that we would find restoration and peace, that we find that God is not short on mercy when his children come to him for it. And so we receive from Jesus uh, first an encouragement uh, about temptation and that God's love is greater than any temptation uh, we face, greater than even the agents of temptation uh, in our lives. And then we get an encouragement uh, to forgive in verses 3 through 4. And particularly what Jesus wants us to, uh, he says here, he, he says, pay attention to your forgiveness. He says, watch out for yourselves. Because he says that if our brother sins, we ought to rebuke him. Now, to rebuke is to directly make known to our brother or sister in Christ how they have sinned against us. It is a Christian sibling's responsibility to make known to their brother or sister the sins and the, uh, that they cannot see. Because we all have our blind spots. We all have our things that we don't even, we can't, we're just too close to it. 
We're too vested in it that maybe we can't see it. So we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside and say, hey, uh, this, this, is, this is going on in your life. I see what's happening here. What's, what's, what's going on here, right? And so that, now there's more to say here about how to properly go about doing this. And Jesus does say more in other places. Um, but, uh, but, to, but what we're talking about is strengthening one another in holiness. And, and i got to say, it's a pretty radical teaching today to say that we need to correct one another in the church. Now, this is not a call for Christians to become, you know, you know nosy busybodies. Uh, but it's also not a call. It's, it's specifically calling out a kind of Christian uh, don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to sin. It is, Jesus is giving us a call here to love one another, to be concerned about one another, enough to say something to each other, to help one another. And if they repent, Jesus says we must forgive them. This is why we're talking about, this is, so, this is like the specific context here, someone, of someone in the church, another Christian who has sinned against you. And so and Jesus says if they repent, we must forgive them. He says if he sins seven times and repents seven times, then we must forgive. And no wonder the next verse, the disciples say, increase our faith. But isn't Jesus here just giving kind of a silly out? That, people can, that, that gives people the license to do or say whatever they want as long as they say those two magic words, I repent or I'm sorry, and there's no consequences to, to face. Well, no. Uh, rather, Jesus assumes here, first of all, that the repentance is genuine each time. And, and so Jesus is not here authorizing abusers or word games. Rather, he is establishing a standard of forgiveness that will only make sense in the light of Christ's coming sacrifice and the full revelation of the gospel in the gospel of Luke. To forgive is not simply to accept an apology. It is to forgive and release another from the debt that they owe us for the damage they did to us with their sin. And sins, we must also point out, can have all manner of earthly consequences depending on the type of sin it is. And those consequences will have to be faced whether or not, no, no matter what, uh, um, no, whether or not I forgive someone or whether you forgive them, if they've broken laws and they need to face those earthly consequences. But, uh, because whether or not I forgive doesn't mean that they don't have to face the consequences of the law. But this kind of forgiveness that Jesus describes here, it's simple, but it's not quick, or, and it's not easy. It's not papering over things. This kind of forgiveness requires compassion and courage. And notice here that Jesus says we must forgive those who repent. He doesn't talk about those who don't repent. So there's another way to handle that situation. Jesus isn't handling that situation. He's not saying... Uh, you know, if somebody wrongs you, then, you, you know, you have to, like, go to them, even if they're not repenting, and go, I forgive you, you know, and do that kind of passive-aggressive thing, you know, where you forgive people who aren't asking to be forgiven, all right? And those, and, and, and those, those who have been forgiven, 
and our, our being forgiven by God even daily are essentially just being, are being called to walk in the pattern of Christ, to walk in the pattern of God, to, to forgive those who are turning from their sin and asking forgiveness from us. And we are called to walk in the manner of the gospel. But note here that Jesus says to pay attention to yourselves in this area. He says, watch out. Why? Why do, we, why do we need to watch out for our forgiveness? Because it is really easy to slip into bitterness and resentment. I mean, think about the last time that someone straight up wronged you and you didn't do anything. All right? How many conversations of confrontation did you have with that person in your head? And with self-righteous indignation, right? Okay, we always look so good in those conversations in our heads. But it is easy to take wounds and to nurse them into grudges. And as Jesus reminds us, he reminds us we need to look to him, to his life, to his death, for, that for us to forgive our Christian brothers and sisters when they repent of how they have sinned against us. The Christian church is a fellowship of believers who often sin against each other and ought to seek forgiveness and mercy, and mercy from one another and to extend that out as we love one another. When Jesus says, they will know you by how you love one another, they will know me by how you, they, they, will know, they will know you by, uh, no, I'm butchering this quote, and they will know you by how you love one another, right? They, they will know Christ, they will know God. They will know that we are truly Christians by how we treat each other. That's part of it. It's not we never sin against each other. It's when we do, we, we lovingly make it known to one another and we seek forgiveness and we extend forgiveness. And so we have an encouragement here about forgiveness, an encouragement about temptation, and third, an encouragement to trust God in verses 5 and 6. And the simple principle here, and we've talked about this before, but it's something that comes up a lot because we forget it, which is that faith is only as powerful as its object. The apostles rightly heard Jesus' standard of forgiveness. They looked at their own hearts and asked for Jesus to increase their faith. Essentially, they're asking for Jesus to, for, to give them faith, the faith that they need. And because forgiveness does require faith in a Savior. Faith in a Savior who has not only forgiven us, but who will also right every wrong in the end. That's one reason we can forgive people. It's because we know that our God will make every wrong right in His glory. Biblical forgiveness is thus different from the world's standard of forgiveness, which increasingly we don't have forgiveness in the world, Because forgiveness, biblically speaking, flows from heaven to earth, not vice versa. But the disciples have it wrong here because it's not uh, that there's a certain amount of faith that is required in order to be a forgiving disciple or a good disciple. Jesus says that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, one of, one of the smallest things commonly in, uh, in, in, in that society, uh, if you have that, then you could re- replant trees on command. But Jesus, lest we get confused, Jesus is not here advocating for creative landscaping procedures. 
Rather, he is highlighting that the power of our faith is not in we who possess that faith or the amount of the faith that we possess. The faith itself, the power of it, is found in its object. If I have all the faith in the world in my own kindness and generosity that I will be a loving and forgiving person, right? if I believe in the goodness of the universe, if I believe in the goodness of mankind, that doesn't mean that I'm actually going to be a forgiving and loving person as Jesus requires here, because the object of my faith is, not going, is going to fold like a house of cards, because it cannot handle it, because it's not real. It's not powerful. You cannot stand the burden that faith places on it. Because our faith lives in a real world. It deals with real sins and sorrows and wounds that requires supernatural grace and mercy. And those only come through faith in God and Jesus. Because what is impossible with man, as Luke is going to say in, uh, in Jesus is going to say in Luke 18, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Because God can heal wounds. He can remove the poison of resentment that we have hidden in our bones. He can enable us not only to forgive our brothers in Christ who wrong us, but even to do good to our enemies who hate us. And so the test of our faith is not the amount of faith, but where is our faith placed? What is it that you desire most in this world? What is it that you are most afraid of losing? Will you entrust God with it? Will you trust that God has your best in mind? That he will accomplish your very best in eternity? Because all of these are necessary to place our trust in Christ and to give him the idols, the things that we are trying to hold back is what we must have in order to be forgiving disciples. And so we have had three encouragements. And finally, our fourth encouragement today is an encouragement to stay humble. In order to stay humble, Jesus reminds us that at the end of the day, Our very best is that we are unworthy servants. Now this part of uh, the text here seems a a bit strange and and perhaps even a bit harsh, but it was commonly understood in that time that uh, that servants, basically, they would work outside the house and inside the house. Uh, If you were somebody who had basically kind of, uh, of any means, you would have one, maybe a few servants, uh, but maybe not a ton, but you would have at least one. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and so, and it reminds me of when you uh, watch those Victorian pieces, or you read like a Dickens novel. Um, they'll talk about you know guys who d- even didn't have like a ton of money. They would often have someone who would come in and like cook and do stuff, and so they would have that. Uh, and so that's the idea there. And so, and what it would normally happen is the servant would be working out in the field, uh, working the plow, or doing something like that. And then there was a mid-afternoon meal, and they would go in and they would prep the meal uh, for their master. And 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 then after that, they would get a break and get to eat as well. And uh, and so he's saying, and so he's saying, you know, which uh, and so what Jesus suggests here, he's saying, well, you know, would would, would the master serve the, the uh, serve the servant? Would you say, well, oh, you come in from the field and kick your feet up? And, and I mean, would the servant like that? Sure. 
But he said, would that? And it would seem as absurd, as, as laughably absurd to his audience. In modern times, we can think of an employer and an employee. You know, would the owner of the company come and just interrupt his worker in the middle of their shift so, they could, so, that, so the owner could serve them? Well, maybe. There might be some kind of stunt or special event where, uh, where the employer does that or something like that. But that's going to be a rare occasion because if they did that every day, no work would get done. And there would be chaos. <laughs> and further, you know, should we be thanked for simply doing our job? You'd be like, well, I kind of want to be thanked for doing my job, but should we? Should we demand being thanked? Why? I fulfilled my basic job description. Okay, well, well, thank you for that, I guess. All right. And so here Jesus is dealing with the temptation that comes for his disciples once we have been following Jesus for a while. We developed some good habits. We got a you know, we increased our Christian vocabulary. We've, we've increased our knowledge of the Bible. We've begun to do uh, service, to serve in the church, and, and even begin to really sacrifice our time and our talents and our resources for the kingdom. And, 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 there, and, and the thing is, is whenever we do that, there's a wonderful opportunity for pride to come in and just ruin it. Because our pride can turn just about anything into some form of beating our chests. And there are Christians who get caught up with the list of things that they do for the church. List of things that they do for God. And the true story, I always remember the true story of the lady who told one of the pastors at, at the church she was at that this church belongs to me and Jesus. You know why? Because she gave so much money she basically paid the mortgage on the building. And so, so if you made any decisions in the church, you need to run them past her because she's co-owner of the church with Jesus. But that list becomes an idol because rather than looking to Christ's righteousness being our foundation, rather than looking to his death and his resurrection being everything we need, uh, we, we, we start looking to our list of accomplishments. We start looking to our long attendance the fact that our name is on the rolls somewhere, and we can say, that's why God's happy with me. That's why I'm okay with God. That's why God loves me, because of these things. But Jesus says that even the greatest of us, the ones that we would look at, we go, now that's a Christian, right? Even we who have done all of that, when we've done our very best, at the end of the day, we've only done our jobs. But, let me ask you, who here really does all that God commands? It's an illusion, or delusion, that we buy into. And so Dalroff Davis calls uh, what Jesus says here the cure for Christian big head syndrome. Because it's not that we shouldn't serve Christ in these many ways. It's that our service to Christ is born of his love and mercy for us, not, and it does not form the reason he loves us. But over time, we can, we can miss the distinction. We can start mixing it up. But we love Jesus because he first loved us. 
We serve him with the gifts and abilities that he has endowed us, uh, in, in, that, are, that are timed with the opportunities that he has planned for us. Indeed, the, the, uh, the author of Ephesians, uh, Paul, says in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that Christ has saved us from the spiritual death, made us alive in Jesus Christ. We are therefore God's workmanship in Jesus Christ, coming out of the, workmanship, the workhouse of God, that we may do the good works that he has planned in advance for us to do. There is nothing that we do that God says, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. Thanks so much. I didn't think about that. He says everything you are, everything you do, everything you're going to do, it is a good work in the name of Jesus Christ. I have planned for you. I have endowed you with the abilities and time and talents and the opportunities to do it. So don't think that what the things that you do are the reason that God loves you as you get through time. Because that's a scary place to be once you stop doing those things. Or once you start realizing how, many, how those things are riddled with the corruption of sin. When I was, when I was interning, uh, I, we lost the pastor and, I, and so I got licensed to preach. And the first time I preached morning and evening service, well, I lived in the manse, so we lived literally just right, like there was the church, and then you just walk across the parking lot, there's the house, right? And so I walked in the house, went into the kitchen, and then I just collapsed on the floor and wept because it was just, it was just took it out of me. And it was just, um, and, uh, and it just, it was really just emotionally yeah, <laughs> empty <laughs> and so exhausting. And so now I've been preaching for over 10 years. Count there, you know, 12 plus years now preaching. You count Carthage or 11 or so. And uh, lots of sermons. But I remember years ago, um, years ago, um, having this crisis, this moment, and just sitting there and just, um, and just seeing that um, my preaching and my pastoral ministry were not going to be enough for God to love me. And if I'm not going to be that, if that's not enough, then what am I? You know, and just sitting there. And thankfully, I have a very loving wife who spoke the gospel <laughs> to me, to the, to the preacher, <laughs> and reminded me of his grace. And, uh, um, but, uh, but we need to remember, in all seriousness, you are not your list of Christian accomplishments. At the end of the day, if you've done everything that God has commanded of you and you know you haven't, but even if you did, all you did was your job. I don't play golf, but I know enough to say that the best day on the golf course we're saying here is you hit par. You didn't do anything extra. You didn't do anything special. You didn't merit any extra good works in heaven. We've only done our jobs. But we need to remember that we are not, God does not love us because we do our jobs. And we can say amen to that because there's oftentimes we don't. There's oftentimes we fail. And if we stop and we go, well, who am I? If I'm not these things that other people around me think I am, if I'm not as holy as people think I am, if I'm not as knowledgeable about the scriptures that people think I am, if I'm not as competent, as good of a parent, or as good of a person, or as good with whatever it is that people think about them, and I've worked really hard to make them think I'm really good at these things. If I'm not those things, then what am I? 
Well, if you're in Christ and you are a child of the living God, beloved of the Lord, secured forever with an inheritance that is eternal in the glory of His kingdom, you are loved. You are clean. You are holy. That's who you are. And not because of the things you do, but because of what Christ does, what He has done. So are you discouraged this morning? Because I'll be honest with you, I walked in this morning discouraged. Yes, the pastor who was preaching a sermon on encouragement walked into the service today discouraged. Just wrestling with spiritual discouragement. Have you fallen in temptation recently? Have you struggled to forgive? Have you been wrestling with doubts in your faith? Have you realized that you're prideful in ways that you never thought possible? You need to know that Christ, your Savior, doesn't give up on you. Because here He is, and the Holy Spirit, through His Word, right now, encouraging you. And so I encourage you today in Christ to remember That God's love is greater than your temptations or your tempters. Trust Him. Repent. And be forgiven. And walk in fresh obedience. Endeavor after it. By His help and grace and power. God's love is greater than your wounds. Look to the wounded and risen Christ for the strength to forgive your brothers and sisters who have wounded you and are seeking forgiveness. God is greater than our doubts and our failures of faith. He is the power of salvation in our faith. Set your hope and trust on Him and He will be all the power you will need. Remember that at the end of the day, all that you do, work hard to be a worthy servant, But remember, at the the end of the day, we are but unworthy servants, even on our best days. But we are more than unworthy servants because of the gospel. We are unworthy servants, but we are also children of the living God, beloved because of his mercy. God's love for you is stronger than all your failure and all your weaknesses. Remember that. And so strengthen yourself today in Him. Strengthen yourself in His love. And go out today in His peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You take moments to withdraw the sense of Your presence. To strip us down and to remind us that we are not as good as we, we think we are. That we've taken our eyes off of Christ. That we have set them in, in, in worshipfully on the things of this world. That we have become unforgiving and bitter. That we are, have become hard. That we have embraced doubts and uh, and and. And we just set our eyes and trust on other things, 
hoping that they would satisfy, hoping that they would that make us feel better. And we thank you, Lord, for those times where you strip us bare. And then in our vulnerability, rather than raking us over the coals as we would deserve, you remind us that your son was killed for us, that his blood was shed for us, and that he is sufficient even now as our Savior, that we are yet your children in spite of our foolishness, and that you call us by your name, not because of our accomplishments, but because of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that wherever we have failed, wherever we have sinned, wherever we have turned away from you, wherever we have gotten lost and discouraged, Father, Lord, may we turn to you. May we turn to Christ. May we renew our strength in your love and mercy and goodness. May your tender love heal our wounds, strengthen our doubts, and and put us Father, to work for the sake of your name in in fresh and glorious obedience for the sake of the gospel. And make you use us, Lord, in a humble boldness to spread the joy of Christ to those around us. That they may see our lives. They may see something distinct and different than what they see in the world. That they would ask us about the hope that is in us. And that we would be prepared to answer Not our list of accomplishments, not our goodness, but only Jesus. Only Jesus. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.